Let, let's start with the Romans passage, um, Romans 11 to 13. I, I had a story for you along those lines too. That's going to illustrate quite well something I, I uh, wanted to discuss. Thank you. You even put pre to make it just the right tone. Wow. Wow. There's a lot of love for it in that cup. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Blessed are your mom, woman. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> As I'd say, well, giving, giving to someone even a, a cup of coffee in the name of a disciple. Well, it's a cup of water, so. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, here's a little story for you. Four young novice nuns were about to take their vows. <coughs> Dressed in their white gowns, they came into the chapel with the Mother Superior and were about to undergo the ceremony to marry them to Jesus, making them brides of Christ. Just as the ceremony was about to begin, four Hasidic Jews with yarmulkes, long sideburns, and long beards came in and sat in the front row. The Mother Superior said to them, I am so honored that you would want to share this experience with us, but do you mind if I ask you why you came? One of them replied, Oh, we're from the groom's family. These are the chapters where Shaul talks about the future where uh, the groom's family gets reinvolved in, in the, the ultimate wedding. So... I, 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 I want to share with you a little my, my own journey of how I came into Messianic Judaism, how I came to embrace a Torah lifestyle, um, etc. Because it really ties into these, these chapters. These chapters were pivotal for me. Um, in, okay, like I, I love church history. I'm an avid student of church history. Um, some of it is embarrassing and very and very troubling. You know, we definitely have some dark chapters in, in our in our journey as the body of Messiah. Um, some of it is probably stuff we wouldn't even identify very closely with. We'd say, well of course that wasn't real Christians or whatever. But there is also such a such a bright side to church history. It's the story of Yeshua and how he really did come through on his promise that he would always be with his people, that he would always lead his people, um, that he would save his people from their sins. And uh, he has always had a people that have, that have been a remnant of Israel, who have been a testimony of Mashiach. There have always been a people who have, who have stood for the gospel and, and often who have also stood for, for God's Torah. Um, of course, they, they more went underground, they more disappeared off the scene of church history in the 400s. Uh, for instance, the, you know, the early Jewish believers were called the sect of the Nazarenes. They were still around when uh, the Roman Catholic Church was formed in the three and four hundreds. Uh, authors like Eusebius and Epiphanius write about them, and sure enough, they're uh, they're the literal descendants of those first generation Jewish disciples of Yeshua. They're still living their lives as traditional Jews. They're still reading the Law and the Prophets in Hebrew every Shabbat and uh, doing a lot of the things that we do today. And uh, then they disappear. I think they simply dissolved under the intense persecution. Um, and, you know, of course, we, we have the, the, dark, the Dark Ages, a very, very troubling time in history, over a thousand years. Um, dissidents were um, arrested, um, usually executed, you know, very, very not pretty. Um, but 
there, there started to be a change, as you know. Uh, let's say f in the 14 or 1500s, there was a movement of restoration that began. Um, men like Tyndale and Wycliffe had such a, a fire in their hearts to see the common people able to read the word of God in their own languages. And that sparked a major restoration. When the people of God began actually reading the word of God, they began comparing some of the practices that were traditional church practices and realizing they weren't in the book. We continue to do that today. But <clears throat> it, it, it reminds me of how Yeshua said that before his return, there would be that restoration of all things. And I have no doubt that we have that we're still going to see the culmination of that. But when you look at church history, there's a side to it that is the story of how Yeshua is restoring that, it's restoring to his body that which was lost. I mean, things that we take for granted, the Baptist movement, the Anabaptist movement in the 1500s, people would, people would die, people would be drowned by the state because they chose to immerse themselves as water, in water as adults to say that they were believers in Yeshua. I mean, and today we take that for granted. Um... There, there, are many such, uh, there are many such moves like that. Uh, I mean, even we take it for granted that we're justified by faith and not by works, whether that be works, you know, um, doing the mitzvot, or whether that be um, things like the beads, or making a pilgrimage to Rome or something. But, you know, in the 1400s, 1500s, people didn't know that. So even men like Luther, for, you know, there was, of course, a side to him that is a... Uh, not as attractive, but there's this another side to him where he was a very vocal voice for the doctrine of justification by faith and faith alone. And good on him for that. You know, the Messiah. So we, we see that throughout history, Messiah has been restoring to his body that which was lost. And that was why I love studying church history. Because I could just see how he would raise up men in every generation and he would speak through them and he would call his people back to the original faith. What, what, what did Jude say? The faith that was delivered once for all to the saints. He would call, call the people back to more that model of the early church. And this was like my heartbeat. This was what I lived for in my late teens. I just, I wanted to know what the original church was all about. <clears throat> How did they do their faith? Like, what, that, that power that they walked in. I was not walking in that power. I knew a few people who were walking in that power. Where was it? So, you know, my, my, my mid to late teens were definitely a quest for me. And uh, <clears throat> I reached a point where I realized that most of the denominations on the market today were started by one of these men of God who had a voice in their generation and were used to restore something to the body. Um, here, name a denomination to me. Let's trace it back and, and see where it came from. <clears throat> Lutheran. Okay, Lutheran. You trace that back, of course, to Luther. Um, oh, I, I was reading an intellectual lately who said that basically every great organization is the length and shadow of a great person. And I can see how that's very true. So the Lutheran denomination is the result of a movement that was started by Luther. The Lutheran denomination is the length and shadow of Luther. Uh, Presbyterians, how did they start? That was with, uh, was it Calvin? Yeah, okay. Calvinists, yeah. So the Presbyterians are the length and shadow of John Calvin and his teachings. Nazarenes. Nazarenes. Now the Nazarenes and the Alliance Church both are both came from the writings and the ministry of A. B. Simpson. So they are they are the length and shadow of A. B. Simpson. Methodists. Methodists, length and shadow of whom? John Wesley. <laughs> Quaker. 
Quakers, length and shadow of George Fox, mid 1600s. Salvation Army. Salvation Army, the length and shadow. Of, I don't know what Calvin was responsible for restoring the doctrine of Calvinism. I guess. I don't know. Thanks for those comments, though, because it gave me a chance to sip my coffee. And I that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, like <clears throat> as I was studying church history, this is th- these were my personal observations. Eh? I mean, I, I'm using some I'm using some generalizations here, right? This is this is my this is my broad understanding of church history. Um, one interesting movement actually was the Pentecostal movement in the early 1900s, because that wasn't the product of a single man and a voice that he had. That was something that broke up more around the world in conjunction with several key figures like Evan Roberts in Wales, um, Azusa Street, and Charles Parham in, in Topeka, Kansas. Um, so uh, interestingly enough, I actually I read an article. It was called the Pentateuchal. Revival, and uh, it, it, it paralleled the early Pentecostal movement of a century ago and the Messianic movement slash Hebrew roots movement today. Only it called it the Pentateuchal revival, and it's actually remarkable the similarities. Just like the Pentecostal revival wasn't the product of a single person and their message, the Messianic Jewish slash Hebrew roots movement today isn't the product of a single person or the message. It is a it is a world like it is a, is a move of God that transcends just one specific name or a key figure or whatever. Although, of course, there have been key figures and, and players. So, anyway, as I was as I was studying church history and this, these things were going through my mind, I came to realize that most of the denominations out there are the product of the past move of God. Mm-hmm. We, we have a God who is alive, who is active in the body of Messiah, restoring stuff, who is on the move. And our tendency is to want to peg him and get him, get him in an organization and then exactly and box him in. The only problem is he moves on and then we're left with this organization, mm-hmm. with the structure. And uh, so, you know, so again, I don't have anything against past moves of Elohim, but I, I think that there's a key in saying, okay, so that was what he did 100 years ago and you've parked on that. But the question is, what is he doing 100 years later today? Where is Yeshua, what is Yeshua communicating to his body today? And those, those were the questions that started going through my mind in my late teens. Because I was passionate to know Elohim. I wanted to see, like, what, not even what he was doing today, but I wanted to know what, what are you going to do in the next decade? Like, if these were great moves from the past, what is your next great move going to be? Because I want to be in on that one. So I, I started praying. I started asking him this. And uh, I felt like he started giving me some answers, too. Like, I, I could see how there were certain elements of Mashiach's message that we had lost touch with over time. The, the, the main thrust of his, king, his preaching was the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And I have to admit, I, I didn't hear any preaching that I can remember about the kingdom of God growing up. So I knew, like, okay, there's going to be something about his kingdom that is critical. Um, Yeshua was observant. He observed the Torah his whole life. He said things like, our flagship verse in the Messianic movement, right? Matthew 5, don't think that I came to do away with the Torah. Um, the people who are great in the kingdom, they're, they're great. They're the people who do the mitzvot, even the least of them, and teach others, eh? So th- this has been some of my, hey, Shabbat Shalom, great. Good shabbat shalom. Shalom. They're not leaving because I said something that offended them, by the way. Usually, if I say something that offends someone, they don't leave right away. They just wait until after the service, and then they never come back. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but, um, yeah. 
Sure. But so that, that was my ideological journey. Those, those were the questions that I was beginning to ask, the conclusions that I was beginning to come to. Teresa, do you want to come sit with me? Come here, baby. Come here, baby. And these chapters, Romans chapters 9 to 11, were massive in uh, the conclusions that I was coming to. I'll, I'll share with you a couple specific verses if you want to look at Romans chapter 11 with me. Romans chapter 11. Verse, uh, verse 11. Down. Down? Okay. Well, so there he says, I say that they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? And then scroll down to verse 15. If their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So here, Shaul speaks very optimistically about the future of national Israel, about the future of the ethnically Jewish people. He doesn't say, like, it's over for them, the uh, God has thrown them in the garbage dump of his salvific plan. Um, no hope for them. They're just normal like everybody else now. All those old covenants are broken. He says there's a reason for their transgression. Through their transgression, salvation has come to the nations. Mm -hmm. And then in the next verse, verse 12, so if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? So he references their transgression and failure. And then he references their future fulfillment. So what is, the, what is the fulfillment of Israel going to look like? Has it happened yet? No. No. So if their if failure and transgression, according to Paul, brought so much to the nations of the world. I mean, you look at how the early Yeshua movement impacted imperial Rome even, the civilized world. It was huge. He's saying if that was the case then, think about what's going to happen when the, pe the Jewish people come into their destiny. And then, again, he reiterates that thought in um, verse 15. So if the rejection... So if, if, if the majority of the religious Jewish establishment rejects Yeshua as Mashiach, if that equals the reconciliation of the world to the Creator, like the cosmos coming back into alignment with the will of God and seeing His light come back into the universe on that level, what is their acceptance going to be? So like if, if, if them rejecting Yeshua equaled this, what's going to happen when they receive Yeshua in the future? He, he, what he said is life from the dead. Like, uh, that maybe that could mean like the literal resurrection of the dead at Yeshua's return. But I wonder if it couldn't also mean like massive sustained revival in the body of Messiah. And I don't just mean glitz or glamour or emotional hype or whatever that sometimes people immediately trumpet as revival. I mean like genuine revival where the body of Messiah wakes up, where we, we come to that revelation of Him that, that changes our <coughs> lives, that makes us more like Him. Maybe that even brings us back to His Torah, ultimately. Could that be? Could it be that a revelation of Yeshua will ultimately bring us back to God's Torah, the, you know, the Bible that Jesus read, the Bible that He lived out? Yeah, so anyway, these verses, like, they impacted me. Because I, I believe that we're in that time frame 
where the Jewish people have begun to come to Yeshua in larger numbers and retain their Jewishness, I believe that's going to escalate. If that's the case, then what Paul was describing here is the greatest move of God that will happen in, in church history and in the history of the world. Like when the Jewish people come to faith in Mashiach, that is it. And uh, so far, all of the movements that we've seen in church history have been restorative movements in the parameters of the body of Messiah. We haven't seen a movement that has involved the Jewish people coming to Yeshua until the advent of Messianic Judaism, really. Mm-hmm. Like in the last four or five decades. And there was, there, was a, there was a trickle before then. There was a trickle of Jewish people coming into the kingdom. So anyway, when I, studying those verses helped me to realize that if I want to be on the cutting edge of what he's doing, if I want to be part of a movement that is still like in the womb, shall we say, and hasn't even emerged fully yet, then that was what my conclusion was, this is what I want to invest my whole life in. This is what I want to be a part of. So I started attending the synagogue. I, I got a Sidora prayer book. I began studying Hebrew language. I began reading extensively on Judaism. You know, I involved myself with the Messianic Jewish movement. I took several trips to Israel, long trips. Those have all been steps in my journey, right? It's going to look a little different for each one of us, but the key there is this, this is something that is going to impact the body of Messiah on a level that we haven't seen yet, yes. and it is going to impact the whole world yes. on a level that we haven't seen. It, yes. is, it is going to make the media when Jewish people really begin coming to faith in Yeshua as a Jewish Messiah, and they continue to practice Judaism, mm-hmm. only like a completed and biblically-based Judaism. Mm-hmm. That, 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 that's my understanding. You know, I've questioned, if, if when Yeshua came the first time, He came for the non-observant people, like He came for the non-religious Jews, those were the ones He keyed in mm-hmm. on. You know, it was like the, the fringes of Jewish society, the bad Jews that really were attracted to him. What's that going to look like the second time around? Could, could it be that when the power of God really breaks out in national Israel, maybe it'll be that same element of society that will really be attracted to a, a Judaism, a Messianic Judaism that is attractive, that is, that is open, that is maybe a little more basic than highly advanced and complicated ultra-Orthodox Judaism? Those are questions. Well, we'll have to see. But I, I would just, I would just love to see. I, I, I have so many Israeli friends, and I love them. And some of them believe in God. Some of them think there's probably a God, but like they don't, they don't have a very close relationship with Him, or they're really not doing His Torah. You know, it's just, it's like there's a disconnect there. And I, 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 I hope that those are the kinds of people that are attracted to Yeshua as He reveals Himself to His brothers, just like Joseph revealed Himself to His brothers. That's just, I, I'm just going to scroll through Romans and point out a couple other things here too. That was, that, that was my, that was, that's the major passage that really jumps out at me that, as I said, was a turning point in my journey. It's like some of my, my life verses, some of my flagship verses for my whole mission. Um, Romans 11, 5 to 6, I think are really relevant. Uh, sometimes like, People in the Messianic community, obviously we're different. We do things differently than most of the broader Christian community. Uh, for example, um, many Messianic people don't do Christmas, right? Um, just respectfully abstain from that whole thing. And, uh, but sometimes along the way, you kind of get this, we, it's, it's possible for us to contract this attitude of like, well, why is it that we get it and they don't get it? I just don't understand how they don't get it or whatever, right? 
And uh, I think these verses are really good verses to help keep us, uh, they're good verses to like help us just take a pulse and uh, stay with the right attitude. So he's talking here about, okay, so he's talking about like people bowing to Baal, right? So that's an extreme instance of um, people not getting it. The people who are bowing to Baal really didn't get it. And I'm not saying that that means that people who practice some stuff that we don't practice are bowing to Baal, okay? I'm just kind of using this as a, as a parallel here. But what, what, what's the response? In verse 5 he says, In the same way, there's also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's joy, gracious choice. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So the point is, if you feel like you've understood something that other people haven't, just remember that it, you, you don't understand that because of anything that you've done. You don't even deserve it. It's just because he is being gracious to you. And that's his prerogative. And if we always approach it from that viewpoint of his gracious choice, we will always stay humble. And, hey, we won't be able to judge anybody if they don't say things the way we do. Because it, it always brings <coughs> back to him, right? It's his choice. It's his grace. We are the undeserving recipients of it. And even you think of how the Master said, many are called, but few are chosen. So, I mean, Yeshua walked through the Galileo, for instance. He called many people to himself. He called many tax collectors to himself. But it was Matthew who chose Messiah and who experienced that chosenness in the process, hey? Um, and they were to be the remnant mm-hmm. that would carry it on. So, I mean, I, I, I think people can disqualify themselves from God's choosing, too. Uh-huh. Nobody has to be <coughs> Kind of like you choose him, he chooses you. There's a there's a two way there's a two way um what shall we say responsibility there. Um, Eleven verse thirteen. Uh, some for some people the term Gentile is a dirty word. In large sectors of the Messianic community, um, if if someone is non-Jewish, like legally speaking, and someone refers to them as a Gentile, people can be very offended and up in arms about that term. And uh, I've had many discussions with people about that. Um, people, you know, they'll say, well, I'm, I'm not a Gentile. I, you know, Ephesians 2, Gentiles are those who are without hope and without God in this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you read Paul's letters, he calls believers who are not legally Jewish, he does address them as Gentiles sometimes. Mm-hmm. He continues to refer to them as Gentiles. Now, at the same time, that's balanced by the fact that there's a greater reality going on here. He, effect, he, you know, he affirms that they're members of the covenant, that they are part of the commonwealth of Israel, that they're B'nai Avraham, they're like children of Abraham, right? So there is that side, but there's also the side where Paul continues to call halachically non-Jewish believers Gentiles. Here, here's a verse, Romans 11:13. I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Notice he didn't say, I'm speaking to you who were Gentiles. So he's calling... He's addressing a specific sector of the Messianic community, those who aren't from a Jewish background or halachically Jewish, and he's addressing them as Gentiles. So we can infer from this, and there are quite a few other places in his epistles where he does this, that Gentile is not a dirty word. It's not an insult to call someone a Gentile. And uh, it's actually, we're going to learn in the next chapter, Gentile believers have a special mission. They have a special way that they can glorify God that Jewish believers can't. So we're going to learn about that next Shabbat. Uh, give you that, I'll give you that sneak preview for now. Uh, 11 verse 13, Paul references a Jewish tradition. Sorry, 11 verse, uh, 11 verse 16. He mentions, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. There's an Orthodox Jewish custom of pinching off a piece of the challah and uh, leaving that as a picture 
of the temple times when some of the dough would be, would be taken off. So it's that concept of if the first piece of the dough is holy, that small piece that's pinched off and devoted to Elohim, then the rest is also... It's, it's, it's notable there that you can't really understand that without a Torah context. Um, 1123. Okay, people will often say, I'm grafted in to the Jewish people, right? I'm grafted into, let's even say, I'm grafted into non-believing Jewish people. And I'm not sure about whether that's technically correct or not. Check this out with me. Romans 11, verse 23. Okay, so like Romans, he begins in Romans 11, 17 talking about branches being broken off, the natural branches, some of the Jewish people due to unbelief, um, wild olive branches, in other words, believers from the nations being grafted in. And uh, he says, you know, don't get, don't get all stuck up about that. You, you, should, be, uh, you should actually be afraid. That's a, that's a warning. If they were cut off for unbelief, you're not um, impervious to that either. But then listen to verse 23. He says, and they also, if they don't continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Mm-hmm. For Elohim is able to graft them in again. So, mm-hmm. even a Jewish person who doesn't, who isn't being faithful to what they know of God, that Jewish person needs to be grafted in too. Mm-hmm. They need to be grafted in too. So it, it works on both sides here. It's not just that Gentiles are grafted in. Jewish people need to be grafted mm-hmm. in too. You don't just get born into this thing and you have de facto citizenship right. and membership. It's faith-based. It's continuing in the chesed, like the devotion and the grace of God. So I appreciate that. This is like across the board. It applies to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so having said that, what is the olive tree? I, I do believe the olive tree is Israel. It, its roots, of course, are in the covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The sap, i.e. the life-giving spirit of God, is flowing through that tree. The anointing of God, pictured by the olive oil, is there. So it's, it's not separate from the entity of the covenants that define Israel. It's just uh, looking at the bigger picture here. Okay, um, 11.25. Let, let's break down Romans 11.25 together. He says, I don't want you brothers to be uninformed of this mystery so that you won't be wise in your own est- estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. So firstly, he says, there's a mystery that he doesn't want believers to be unaware of. He doesn't want them to be uninformed in this area. Why? Because if they are unaware of it, if they are uninformed of this, this mystery, maybe you could call it a paradox, something that's hard to, that's not immediately discernible, then it can result in pride it can result in spiritual arrogance. So what's the solution? Understanding that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. That's the mystery right there. So if, if, the, quote, if, the, if, quote, the church, if the body of Messiah recognizes this mystery, the product will be spiritual humility. So what, what is the mystery? Firstly, he says a partial hardening has happened to Israel. So did you notice he didn't say a complete hardening has happened? So the Jewish people are not completely hard to God. There's a partial hardening for some of them. It's a partial hardening. Um, did all of the Jewish people reject Yeshua? And historically, have all the Jewish people ever rejected Yeshua? Of course not. Any more than all the Gentiles have rejected Yeshua. 
I mean, people, people, you know, they'll sometimes say, well, you know, the Jews rejected Jesus. And I say, well, so did the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. I mean, hey, the, it, it, again, it applies on both sides, right? So anyway, so it's a partial hardening. That's the first key. Second key, it has happened for a period of time. In other words, it's temporary. So it's a partial hardening and it's temporary. Once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, things are going to change. Has the fullness of the Gentiles already come in? Will it come in in our generation? I don't know. But I mean, man, the gospel is really getting out in the world today. Uh, the missions movement in the last century or two has, has, has marked like a massive escalation of believers. Actually, you know what? I was reading some statistics. There are way more believers in South America, in Africa, in Asia right now than in North America. Like North American Europe is no longer the bastion of Christianity. Christianity is suffering in the West and in Europe more than it is in South America or Africa or Asia. I mean, the tables have been totally turned in our generation. And, uh, and, and, and the, uh, the Yeshua movement in, on those continents that several centuries ago were quite darkened in terms of the gospel, it is, it is alive there. It is moving. The power of God is active. Um, like the uh, communities of Yeshua's disciples are just growing like crazy. Well, like in the West and in Europe, we're the ones who are being like, we're, we're lagging behind, statistically speaking. If you want to read a really good book about that, read the book called Megashift by Jim Rutz. His last name is spelled R-U-T-Z, or R-U-T-Z if you're from the States. But Megashift by Jim, James Rutz, yeah. He, he's an author. He documents like the, uh, what does he call it? Like, I think he might call it the apostolic movement in these countries, on these continents. And he documents miracle <coughs> after miracle after miracle of, of things that are happening that most of us never hear about. Like many documented resurrections from the dead. Um, phenomenal stuff. It's really great reading. So anyway, all that to say, has the fullness of the Gentiles come in? Maybe. If it hasn't, it sure is close. And uh, that's when the whole focus in the kingdom is going to shift back to Israel when the father I assume that if there was a partial hardening on Israel that will be removed mm-hmm. and um, I, I assume that what people would call revival will probably break out on a massive level in the greater body of Messiah at that time so anyways um, that, like that's, that's how I would break down this verse and uh, when we factor that in as believers it will result in a humble attitude towards the people of Israel, a humble attitude towards Judaism, and Messianic Judaism. <laughs> like, he ends that on a, on a positive note too. Like Paul is so positive when he talks about Israel, hey? Mm-hmm. This is like even the next verse. He says, so, you know, if, if you were able to be grafted in, and that's, not, and that's not according to your nature, like these are the natural branches. Do you know how easy it's going to be to graft them back in again? Right. <laughs> oh. I value that. Um, Romans 12, verse 1, he encourages us in view of Elohim's compassion to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. So as we're reading through the book of Vaikra, of Leviticus this upcoming year, I want to read the whole book of Leviticus from the perspective of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. That this is, this is about the Aaronic priesthood. It is about offerings in the temple. But there is a higher level. It's very personal personally applicable. The book of Leviticus is about you. It's almost like Paul is saying, on a spiritual level, Leviticus is about you. (coughs) So um, let's remember that. I I want us to take note of that as we move on here. 
um, 12 verse 2, that Paul must have, things must not have been any different back then. Did you notice that in the world today, in the educational system, in the media, everywhere, there's an agenda to program you to think a certain way? Uh-huh. Like, that's a no-brainer. It's, it's not always blatant either, although often it is. Sometimes you have to read between the lines. Sometimes you have to listen to what they don't say. Sometimes you have to watch for what they don't report in the news. Mm-hmm. That's like the untold half of the story. Um, there is an agenda to program us today. <coughs> and Paul says, don't be programmed. Don't be conformed to the Lamazet, to this age. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So maybe the practical question is, how do we renew our minds so that we don't end up being programmed into like serviceable robots to uh, the agenda of some of the higher higher up. Torah. Torah. Yeah. It does say in Psalms that thy Torah is truth. So God's Torah is going to help program us for his kingdom. Maybe we can help each other with that one too, hey? I mean, some of us think more critically. Some of us don't. You know, I value the people who think critically. You know, it's like that's the kind of thing where we can we can compare notes on a regular basis, even with what they're saying on the news. What's the message that's being communicated? Yeah. And uh, the people who can think more analytically about that stuff can be vocal about it and give give the body a heads up, eh? For instance, if you were to like install a beeper in yourself, so every time they say something on the media, or let's say you're reading CBC on the internet, like I sometimes do, if you were to beep every time they don't tell the whole story or or if they communicate some skewed, a skewed perspective. I mean, I'd be beeping a lot, seriously, <laughs> reading CBC sometimes. Um, but, yeah. you know. Very much. Yeah. So, I, and I, we do that sometimes. If Genevieve and I are watching a show or something, if they say something that is wrong, we'll say, that's not true, and this is why. You know, even just staying on guard in the realm of entertainment instead of just sitting back and relaxing and just accepting whatever accepting. they're saying because you're exactly. being entertained, you know? Yeah. And, like, humor and entertainment, they're, like, the sugary coating on lies mm-hmm. and, and, and the programming that, you know, the spirit of this age wants to subject us to. I mean, seriously, how many times have you heard someone say, well, it's funny, you know? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like, if it's funny, then, it's an, then anything it's goes almost. Another very practical aspect, Romans chapter 12, verses... 3 to 8, um, Paul, like, he ties several concepts together. He ties the concept of us as a body together, says we're parts of a, we're parts of a body, you know, we all have our own function. And um, he also connects that with humility. The very first verse there, verse 3, he says, like, not thinking of ourselves higher than we should. Um, he talks about operating in the giftings that he us have, moving in our strengths. So what that tells me is... One of the keys to genuine humility is integrating in a body of believers, serving in a body of believers, knowing what our areas of strength are, you know, knowing what we're good at, our giftings, and then, and then, um, and then sharing that, you know, serving in those capacities. That's a, that takes us a long way in humility. And uh, that's one of my concerns for the broader messianic movement. I have seen many instances of believers who were integrated in, in churches, and they were serving, they were helping, they were moving in their giftings. And then they reached that point where they felt called to leave that, that church and to become part of a Messianic community. 
And I don't know why, but often within a year or two, those people aren't fellowshipping with anybody, period. Like they just give up going to congregation on Shabbat, they just want to stay home on Shabbat, and you end up not moving in your strengths, you end up not serving the body of Messiah at all, and I have often seen that result in a lot of pride in people. And we are all in danger of that. I think that's the message that Paul is giving here in Romans chapter 12. So, you know, let's, let's move together as a body, let's really call each other out and say, you know, I, I encourage each other in our giftings and our strengths. That's a big, that's a big owning, owning topic sometime, I think. And, uh, yeah. and just continue to grow in humility together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's look, at a, let's look at a couple things from the, uh, <coughs> the Torah portion also. There's one, there's one link here. This is actually really cool that we're reading these sections from the apostolic writings in tandem with these parses because there are some very, there, there's some real thematic links here. I'm, I'm sure you noticed that. Like the fact that the chapters where we're reading about God's plan for Israel in the end of days, Yeshua revealing himself, the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, and then what are we reading about in the Torah? About Joseph revealing himself to his brothers in times of massive crisis, etc. So uh, let, let's, look at, uh, let's look at the last parsha in Rishi together. The last Torah portion in Genesis. Okay, um, so you'll notice that there was that partial hardening that was temporary until what? Until the fullness of the Gentiles came in, right? Where did Paul get this term fullness of the Gentiles from? The cool thing is he got it from this Torah portion. We actually read that we read that exact term in this Torah portion. And from my from what my studies would indicate, it's the only time that this phrase is used. Once in this Torah portion and here in Paul's epistle to uh, to the Romans. So let's let's look at that for a moment. Um, we've been talking about how Joseph isn't only a picture of the Messiah, son of Joseph, how Joseph is also a picture of believers from the nations. There's some strong similarities there. And uh, similarly, Ephraim also therefore is a picture of believers from the nations. Um, Genesis chapter 48, verse 3. Let's look at... um, Sorry, I have a problem... I study the parasha in Hebrew and I take notes from the Hebrew verses and they're sometimes different in the English translation. So I have all my notes based on the Hebrew verses and then in my English one it's different. Um, let's try 48 verse 20. Okay, good. Okay, Genesis 48, 20. It says this. He blessed them, referring to Ephraim and Manasseh, that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So, I have here my Sidor. It's published by Art Scroll. And uh, I'll, I'll read you one of the blessings that all observant Jews bless their sons with every Friday evening on Arab Shabbat. Um, this is the Sephardi Sidor. What page is it on in the Siddur? Um, page 385 in this one. Okay. I also have an Ashkenazi Siddur, and it's on a different page than that one. But okay. Anyway, this is it. See, uh, I'll, even, I'll even show you the page. See? Blessing of the children. 
And then on the left, for a boy, the blessing is, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And then it has the Birkat Kohanim, the priestly blessing. So every, every Friday evening, observant Jews around the world pray this blessing for their sons. And then the daughters get a special blessing for being like the matriarchs in the faith. Um, here's, here's the footnote to that blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. This is part of the blessing that the patriarch Jacob conferred upon his grandchildren, the two sons of Joseph, and the first Jews born and raised in exile. I'm reading the term Jews into that is slightly anachronistic, but we'll, we'll let that pass for now, okay? What is more, they grew to be sources of pride to the patriarch, despite having been raised in Pharaoh's court at a time when there was no Jewish religious life in Egypt, except for the intimacy of their own family. Jacob himself indicated that this blessing should be given by Jewish parents to their children throughout history. So that tradition dates directly back to the blessing of Israel to Joseph's literal sons. Now, let me ask you, like, on a deeper level, why? What is it about Ephraim and Manasseh that was so distinctive that the whole nation would say, man, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh? Maybe we can brainstorm on that together. Something else notable is that jo- like Joseph's sons shouldn't have received the blessing. But they were adopted into that status in Israel where they received a blessing, where they received an inheritance. So when you, pr- when you say, may you be like Ephraim and Manasseh, it's saying, may you be adopted. May you experience adoption and may you receive your inheritance amongst the tribes of Israel. Um, here are a couple other interesting distinctives. 48 verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Oh, Ephraim and Manasseh, it's so nice to see these boys. No, he actually said, he said, Mi Ela, who are these? So, I mean, he was getting older. Maybe he had some severe cataracts or something. However, maybe it was just that these guys were not recognizable as belonging to the family of Israel. I mean, Ephraim and Manasseh were growing up as the, the children of the second in command in Egypt. They were growing up in Pharaoh's royal court. As such, they did not look like, quote, Jews. They looked very, quote, Gentile. So again, there's a similarity between Joseph's descendants and believers from the nations. Um, 48 verse 16, he says, May they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And uh, this phrase here, grow into a multitude, is yidgu l'rov. And the root for growing is the same root for fish. Yeah, fish. Um, how, does, how does your translation render it there? Um, it says, um, may they proliferate abundantly like fish within the land. Uh, may they proliferate abundantly like fish abundantly. within the land. Now, wh- what was one of the popular symbols of the early Yeshua movement? Believers amongst the nations. It was the fish. I, just, I wonder if that's a coincidence. I don't think it is. So there, there's another peg for you. Similarities. Um, 48 verse 19 he, he adds this blessing. Ephraim's descend, descendants, he says, however, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. The Hebrew term for multitude there is melo, M-E-L-O, melo. And it means literally a fullness. Melo is a fullness of nations that is goyim or Gentiles. 
So you could render that as a multitude of nations, or you could render that as a fullness of the Gentiles. So what did, what did Israel bless Ephraim with? To become a fullness of the Gentiles. And it, it's, it's notable that the only other place where this term is used is in Paul's letter, referencing people <coughs> from the nations coming into the faith. The fullness of the Gentiles coming into the faith. So again, there's this connection between Ephraim and believers from the nations. Just like there's a connection between Joseph and believers from the nations. So this whole concept that, you know, it's all about look, fitting the mold of being a good Jew. Th- th- this, this reality blows that out of the water. Israel is bigger than what some people would like to portray it as being. I like that too because it kind of removes the whole like conformity expectation. Some people like, well, you, you know what I mean. Like, it's like there's this expectation that if you're going to do the Torah, you have to do it a certain way. Mm-hmm. You have to conform. And the reality of Joseph and his son Ephraim says, you may not look exceptionally Jewish, but you are part of the family. The God of Israel is your God, and you have a unique mission to play. You have a role to play in Egypt, among, that is to say in the Gentile world. So I think that's being kind of blown away right now in Israel by all the ones that are coming back to the land. Mm-hmm. Like they, they don't look at all like Jewish people. So oh, yeah. Uh, some of them are black, yeah, some of them are Chinese, some of them are yeah. whatever. Right? Yeah, totally. So. Actually, I, 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 read a, I read a humorous story about that. About a, about a Jew from Brooklyn, New York. And he was like the classic Orthodox Jew, right? He dressed like it. He looked like it. He had the Hebrew schnoz and everything. And so he goes on this trip to, uh, to China. And uh, Shabbat comes in Beijing. And he says, well, I'm going to look, look up the synagogue. So, uh, so he uh, looks up the synagogue. And sure enough, there's a Jewish synagogue in, in Beijing. So he goes there on Shabbat. He walks in. And it's full of Chinese Jews. And uh, the rabbi walks up and says, oh, hi. Um... Welcome here. Where are you from? Are you are you Jewish? And the man says, "Of course I'm Jewish." And he says, "Oh, you don't. You certainly don't look Jewish." <laughs> uh, I, I suppose it just depends on perspective. Eh? <coughs> yeah. Um, one other one other connection between this blessing and and uh, and Ephraim is in forty eight fourteen, where he switches his hands. Ephraim was not supposed to get the blessing he got. He wasn't the oldest born. This was not the natural order. And it's just like this thing that's repeated over and over and over in the Torah. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe the Almighty is trying to make a point. You know, Ishmael doesn't get it. Esau doesn't get it. Um, Reuben doesn't get it. Manasseh doesn't get it. They don't get the blessing. They don't get the birthright. Well, what is this saying? Does it have something to say about how he does not play according to the rules of the game? He doesn't always... The Holy One doesn't function according to natural order. He makes his choice the way he wants to. Maybe he looks at a person's heart instead of their pedigree or their, their family background or whatever. And I mean, I encounter that all the time because, because I have returned to my Jewish heritage after growing up evangelical, because I have legally changed my name, people with mean streaks will always try and peg me and say, you're not really a Jew. Well, that isn't your real name. Never mind that I legally changed it like almost a decade ago and everybody calls me that. You know, and it's like this, this weird tendency that we have as humans to try and take someone and put them in a box 
You know, it doesn't matter if they're a round peg, we're going to stick them in that hole that they don't fit in because we need to control them. Or I don't know what it is. And the other reality is we are on a journey. Mm -hmm. Like we are being transformed. So what I am today is not what I'm going to be in 10 years and I'm really happy about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or in 20 years. Um, yeah. So that whole thing of switching the hands, that's kind of a picture of that. We'll, we'll break for only in about five minutes here. Um, there is an interesting account here. You've probably seen several times the uh, this tradition of like, like like you know the thing with the thigh and swear to me. Um, mm -hmm. Where is it? Forty-eight, isn't it? That's obviously like not a custom in the West. Swearing to someone in conjunction with grabbing their thigh or whatever. Forty-eight plus twelve. Yeah, forty-eight twelve. So I just I wanted to I wanted to read you a, another little story about foreign customs. Because this is a foreign custom to people in the West. Actually, there are a lot of foreign customs in the book of, of Genesis that are definitely native to uh, Middle Eastern culture. Um, an Afghanistan diplomat visiting the U.S. for the first time was being wined and dined by the State Department. The diplomat was not used to the salt in American foods, French fries, cheeses, salami, anchovies, etc., and was constantly sending his manservant, Abdul, to fetch him a glass of water. Time and again, Abdullah would scamper off and return with a glass of water. But then came the time when he returned empty-handed. Abdul, you son of an ugly camel, where is my water? <laughs> demanded the diplomat. A thousand pardons, O illustrious one, stammered the wretched Abdul. A man is sitting on the well. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... All I have to say, when it comes to foreign customs, when we go to the Torah, we need to contextualize them. We need to read about them in context, or, or we can get some really um, funny ideas. Okay, here, here are a couple of practical things that we can end up with here. Um, Genesis 48, 11, it's a really beautiful account where it says, Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, Elohim has let me see your children as well. It's really special. Some of those like end of life words. Uh, what's the what's what? How does your translation render this term "expected"? I never expected to see your face. I did not accept the thought that I would see your face. I didn't accept the thought that I would see your face. Any others translations? Yeah, it's expected. Expected. Okay. The Hebrew term there, he says lo filalti. And the root of filalti that's here translated as expected is pay lamed lamed, palal. It's the same root as the root for prayer. In, in Hebrew, prayer is tefillah. To prayer is like lahit palal. And um, so what he's literally saying there is, I never prayed to see your face again. And uh, this, this gives us a real understanding into prayer. Like the heart of prayer is hoping. The heart of prayer is hoping. So where, where he says, I never prayed to see your face again, what he was meaning is, I never hoped to see your face or expected to see your face again. So just, just remember, I mean, we all have hopes that the Father has set in our hearts. We all have things that we expect to see or that we would like to see. And some of them we're, we're afraid to even admit it. Some of them, like some of the desires that Elohim has set in your heart, you are probably afraid to accept that, I, like, I want this. You know, maybe it's too big. Maybe it's too far out. Maybe someone will think you're, you're proud. Mm -hmm. But just remember, like, there's things that he has said in your heart 
and let this come out as prayers to him. You know, if, 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 if you have some hope for a family member, don't just hope inside. Pray that. Make that your prayer. Like, let, let your hopes become the root of your prayers. Because those prayers are going to be very authentic. They're going to come from your heart. And, uh, and hey, like, when we hope in him, he never disappoints us. We read about that in our last, uh, last Shabbat reading in Romans. He never disappoints those who hope in him. Um, we, we, we've been on a theme for the last couple months off and on about blessing the people in our lives uh, leaving a legacy uh, this is a key passage um, if, you have a, if you have a child who really annoys you then make sure before you die to give them a really mean blessing I'm just joking <laughs> I mean really like some of those quote blessings were pretty hard hitting like Man, I'm Reuben and Simeon and Levi were probably reeling after, like staring at the ground, you know. Um, I don't know if we want to do that, but but you look at the rest of those blessings, and they really picture what blessing can be all about. You know, he 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 compares several of his sons to animals, to different types of animals. He identifies their giftings and their strengths. And uh, what would that look like today? I mean, I don't know if we were to like use animals, it would sound probably we would have a real First Nation sound, which can be meaningful. But what if you were to use other objects in your culture to say to speak positively into your children's lives? Like, what are some examples that we could use? Pumpkin. A pumpkin. <laughs> bubbles. <laughs> Someone is like bubbles. You're I. Like, uh, what? I okay. Here, here's an example. I would say something yeah. like, if I had a son named, um, well, oh. give me, give me a Hebrew name. If I had a son named Jacob. Baby. Jacob. Okay, if I had a son named Jacob, I'd be like. Jack is like a Mack truck. Unstoppable. Okay? Like, really. He was, he was using analogies that were meaningful to them, right? They would see a doe and the, the deer, and they'd be like, wow, that's so graceful. Look at the way it's moving. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd see a lion, and they'd be like, wow, look at him tear the head off that animal. And they'd be like, Judah's like a lion. He's like, nobody can be Judah, right? Like, this is the way that this father was talking about his sons. And I want to tap into this, because I want to learn how to speak into people's lives like that. Like, not just my physical descendants either, people that I'm mentoring, people into whose lives I'm speaking. So what, what, what does that look like, you know? What, what are analogies that we can use? That, can I make that a practical assignment for, like, the next year? Hey, it's, hey dude. <laughs> uh, I, uh, or, I don't know, what would be another example? I mean, like, okay, I'm a bit of a redneck, right? So I will, like, I dream about guns and trucks every week, basically. I think I've shared that with you. So, like, you know, what would be another meaningful? I'd be like, you know, this this boy is like a, he's like a 458 Weatherby Magnum. Like, that's like the ultra high end caliber elephant gun, right? I'd be like, you are like a 458 Weatherby Magnum, like massive power, and uh, you can take down anything, like things like that, eh? So I'm I'm just brainstorming here about what what would it sound like to get in that spirit of blessing using analogies and comparisons that are meaningful to the person receiving the blessing. I wouldn't bless Tirza as a Mack truck because she's a girl. And mm-hmm. she's growing up, I'm sure that she won't think Mack trucks are cool. But, you know, if I had little boys, I'll bet boy, little boys would think Mack trucks are amazing. <laughs> Genesis 48, verse 4. Here's, here's, your, here's your, like, bonus Hebrew lesson I'm just going to throw in. Genesis 48, verse 4, references the land of Israel... And he calls it an everlasting possession. 
The Hebrew term for possession is achuzah. Everybody say achuzah. Achuzah. Sounds kind of dangerous, eh? Hey? Achuzah. Yeah. And the, the, the verbal root there is achaz. To achaz means to grab something, to seize something, to hold on to something. So it's translated here as possession. Uh, you get the idea of that in like holdings. Um, you know, some companies are, have holdings, right? That's an achuzah. It's what you're holding on to. The term here is achuzat olam. Olam is eternal or forever, right? So what is achuzat olam? It's like what you seize and hold on to forever. It is your everlasting possession. And that is the scriptural term for the land of Israel as it relates to the Jewish people. So it doesn't matter what international opinion has to say. It doesn't matter what the majority vote in the UN may be. It doesn't matter what spins the media puts on things. It doesn't matter how many replacement theologians there are with their agendas in the body of Messiah. The word of God says that the land of Israel is the Ahuzad Olam. It is the eternal possession of the people of Israel. And of course we are going to receive that ultimate inheritance. I refer to the people of Israel through Mashiach. Because when he comes back, boom, it's all over. And he calls the shots. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.